Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Inflammatory Content. It is March 20th, 2020, and the COVID-19 pandemic is in full swing. I hope everyone out there is practicing their social distancing. Today's episode will not be about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. However, stay tuned for a future episode in which I will dive deeply into this topic. Today we are going to talk about microbes, but not viruses. Bacteria. Despite bacteria being single-celled organisms that are microscopic in size, they are similar to humans in surprising ways. For example, we humans are social creatures. We benefit from being around one another. It's good for our mental health, for example. Bacteria also form communities and benefit from being around one another. Probably not in terms of mental health, though. More in terms of overall survival. When humans form communities, sometimes they get so big that there's nowhere to go but up. Think of a city filled with skyscrapers. Well, bacteria can form cities too. These are called biofilms. They form on a variety of surfaces, like your teeth or in your gut, and they can be protective or pathogenic depending on the context. You might be wondering, what do these bacteria need protection from? Well, there's a few things. First, the biofilm provides protection from invaders, such as other bacteria and bacteriophages, the latter being viruses that infect bacteria. This dome-like community also provides protection from the host's immune system, specifically neutrophils, which we covered in depth in episode 4. And lastly, the biofilm provides protection from antibiotics, which would otherwise kill or slow the growth of the bacteria. Generally speaking, how do communities provide protection for the individual? Two words, public goods. For us humans, the first one that comes to mind is the stoplight. Stoplights are free to use for everyone, and they prevent us from getting into automobile accidents. Bacteria in biofilms also use public goods. These come in the form of proteins, DNA, and sugar molecules. These public goods exist between the cells in the community and form what is called the matrix. There are three main model organisms that make biofilms. Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Staphylococcus epidermidis, and Vibrio cholerae. And they each make their own unique matrix. The one we will be discussing today is Vibrio cholerae, which causes the disease cholera. Vibrio cholerae biofilms are made up of four major matrix proteins and one polysaccharide. The protein that I would like to highlight today is called RBMA. RBMA binds to the sugar molecule Vibrio polysaccharide. It can then dimerize with other RBMA molecules and other Vibrio polysaccharides, creating a mesh of sorts. This mediates cell-to-cell -cell contact within the biofilm. Now that we have a general idea of what a biofilm is, let's talk about why it's important to continue researching biofilms. Antibiotic resistance is a big problem. Overuse of antibiotics has contributed to the development of superbugs that are not adequately treated with available drugs. Just like superbugs, biofilms also survive antibiotic treatment. Bacteria with hyperbiofilm-producing capabilities are often isolated from patients with chronic infections. 
despite the probable existence of an antibiotic-resistant biofilm, these patients are typically treated over and over again with antibiotics. This provides the selective pressure necessary to give rise to more antibiotic-resistant superbugs. How exactly biofilms provide protection from antibiotics is an area of active research. Antibiotics are known as small molecules. They are so small, in fact, that they are able to get inside of biofilms. Some researchers hypothesize that the existence of tolerant and persistent bacteria inside of the biofilm provides protection against antibiotics. So what are tolerant and persistent bacteria? Over time, bacteria develop random mutations just like humans do. Some of these mutations affect the growth rate of the bacteria, and some antibiotics only work on bacteria that are growing quickly. So, if bacteria acquire mutations that make them grow more slowly, they'll become tolerant to some antibiotics. This tolerance can then be passed on to daughter cells, which can then acquire more mutations, potentially leading to full-on antibiotic resistance. Persister cells, on the other hand, are a little bit different. These cells don't grow at all. The mechanism by which these cells develop is not entirely known. It is thought that stress induces epigenetic modifications, a change in gene regulation that is, unlike the change in genetic code that occurs in tolerant cells. Nevertheless, a high proportion of persisters have been found in biofilms. There have been a lot of studies showing how tolerant and persistent cells respond to antibiotic treatment. However, very few studies have investigated this in the context of biofilms. Thankfully, we now have the technology to address this. Advances such as high-resolution microscopy and computational analytical methods will facilitate this investigation. This is important for not just human health, but also plant health, biotechnology, wastewater treatment, and more. All right, now that the stage has been set, let's get into the paper. Today's article is titled, Breakdown of Vibrio cholerae Biofilm Architecture Induced by Antibiotics Disrupts Community Barrier Function. This was published by Francisco Diaz-Pascal and colleagues out of the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and this was published in Nature Microbiology in December 2019. The overarching question the authors aimed to address in this report was, what effect do antibiotics have on biofilms at the community level? Their first step to approach this question was to modify Vibrio cholerae so that it expressed a fluorescent protein. This allowed the authors to visualize the bacteria at a single cell level under the microscope. They then inoculate these bacteria on a microfluidic device. This microfluidic device pushes culture media into a chamber where cells are being cultured and then out the other end. This super clever piece of engineering allows biofilms to be grown in vitro. Once the biofilm was grown, they challenged it with tetracycline. Tetracycline is an antibiotic that inhibits protein synthesis. Bacteria need to make certain proteins in order to divide, so when given tetracycline, there's no more cell division. It is important to note that tetracycline is the antibiotic that is used to treat cholera in humans. So what happens to these biofilms when they're administered tetracycline? Well, it really depends how long after the administration you look. The authors showed that after 10 hours of treatment, many of the cells die. But earlier, at the 6-hour time point, there's some really interesting architectural changes that occurred. Specifically, each cell gets bigger, its volume increases, while the total cellular density decreases. 
The authors included some time-lapse videos to the online version of the manuscript. I urge everyone to check these out. They are super cool. The next question the authors ask is, how does the volume increase? They hypothesize that it might be due to a change in metabolic activity. To address this question, they did the same exact experiment, except this time they looked at metabolic activity. And they found that when the cells were treated with tetracycline, they were still metabolically active, still able to produce cell wall components, and thus still able to grow in size. So metabolic activity is still occurring, but is it required? To tackle this question, they did the same experiment, but this time, they subtracted glucose from some conditions and added trimethoprim to other conditions. Glucose is the main food source, so without glucose in the media, there should be no metabolic activity. Trimethoprim, on the other hand, inhibits folate synthesis, and by doing this, it inhibits DNA synthesis. And when they made these changes, what they found was that removing glucose from the media or inhibiting DNA synthesis with trimethoprim was able to prevent the increase in volume induced by tetracycline. Thus, metabolic activity, and specifically DNA synthesis, is necessary for the volumetric increase. Importantly, without this change in volume, they saw no change in cellular density. So it makes sense that a cell with an inability to divide, but a continuing metabolic activity, would grow in size. But why would the density change? Why would the cell get farther away from its neighbors? Does it have to do with those biofilm matrix components we mentioned earlier? So how do we figure out the role something's playing in a model? If your answer was take it out of the system and see what happens, you're exactly right. And that was precisely what the authors did. They generated mutant strains of Vibrio cholerae, each lacking a different matrix protein. They found that the only matrix protein required for the change in density was RBMA. As a reminder, RBMA binds to Vibrio polysaccharide and can form dimers, creating a stable mesh across the matrix. Without RBMA, the cellular density of the biofilm is really low, and it gets even lower when tetracycline is added. Why does the density get even lower with tetracycline, you ask? The authors have some really nice pictures with both the cells and RBMA labeled, and you can see that when tetracycline is added, the cells detach from RBMA. Awesome! But how does detachment occur? The authors hypothesized that Vibrio polysaccharide may be involved. So they made another mutant strain. This one lacked RBMB. RBMB is a hydrolase that degrades Vibrio polysaccharide. They found that when they delete RBMB, the cell density stays high. Therefore, Vibrio polysaccharide degradation is necessary for the decrease in cell density induced by tetracycline. So yes, Vibrio polysaccharide is involved in matrix detachment. To summarize what the authors have shown thus far, when Vibrio cholerae biofilms are administered a translation inhibitor like tetracycline, the cell volume increases and the cell-to-cell -cell attraction decreases which ultimately leads to a decrease in cell density. Okay, now this is where the manuscript gets really interesting. All of this stuff about biofilm architecture is really interesting, but how does this change affect invasion? The authors first looked at invasion by planktonic isogenic bacteria. These are individual free-floating cells that are the same as the cells in the biofilm. They then tagged the planktonic cells with one color and the biofilm-associated cells with another. They then tested invasion by using their same tetracycline model, but this time they challenged the biofilm with invaders. And surely enough, with tetracycline treatment, 
more invaders get in. This suggests that the tetracycline-induced architectural breakdown permits bacterial invasion. The authors showed that this was also true for non-isogenic invaders. They did this by challenging the Vibrio cholerae biofilms with Schuonella putrefaces and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Interesting side note, all three of these organisms live in marine environments. So I wondered, would two organisms from different environments be able to invade each other's biofilms? Anyway, I digress. Back to the paper. In their final experiment, the authors challenged the biofilm with phage. These are viruses that infect bacteria. Specifically, they used vibrophage N4. And lo and behold, they found that phage gets in when tetracycline is added, and it stays out when it's not. Super cool stuff. Okay, let's summarize. The authors first grew up Vibrio cholerae biofilms. They then treated them with translation inhibitor antibiotics like tetracycline. They saw that this increased each cell's volume and decreased the cell-to-cell attraction, the latter of which led to a decrease in cell density. Together, these changes in biofilm architecture enabled invasion by both bacteria and phage. This study has greatly improved our understanding of biofilms and further their response to antibiotics. I'm hoping that future studies will figure out how to leverage antibiotic-induced invasion to eradicate biofilms. There are a few additional lines of investigation that I would love to see come next. For example, how does biofilm architecture change with repeated antibiotic exposure? How do these changes in architecture relate to persistent and tolerant microbes? Where exactly in the biofilm do these cells exist? Alrighty, well that concludes today's paper. Time for the successful science strategies segment. The habit I would like to talk about today is reflection. In my earlier years as a scientist, I would often jump from experiment to experiment, often not taking the time needed to fully process the results. As I became more experienced in the lab, I took more time to reflect on each experiment. I literally started meditating. I would sit in my office, close my eyes, and just think about the experiment. I believe this simple act has dramatically improved my ability to plan great experiments, and importantly, to avoid bad ones. So I urge all of you young scientists out there to think carefully about your experiments. Okay, on that note, thank you all for listening. Please write us a review on iTunes. Better yet, tell your friends about us. Anyway, stay safe out there, my friends, and happy sciencing.